DamascusCitizens.org. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk highlights the current positions of Venus and Mars in the early morning sky. Dana from the Accidental Farm podcast shares her insight on what bees do in winter. Stephanie Phillips visits Koshekton, New York, and speaks with Lori Raskin about forest management. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The U.S. State Department is ordering most staff to leave the embassy in Kiev. As Washington warns, a Russian invasion increasingly is looking potentially imminent. All U.S. citizens in Ukraine have also been advised to get out immediately, as an additional 3,000 U.S. soldiers are set to arrive in Poland to help Americans leave. Other nations, including Australia, Jordan, the U.K., and Germany, have advised their citizens to depart. The White House is still pushing, though, for a diplomatic solution. To that end, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin are speaking over the phone today. And NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke earlier with his Russian counterpart. According to the State Department, Blinken made clear that a diplomatic path to resolving the crisis remained open, but warned Russian aggression against Ukraine would result in a united and massive transatlantic response. Meanwhile, Russia said Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov accused Washington of waging a propaganda campaign about a possible Russian attack. Lavrov also reiterated complaints that Western powers had ignored Russian security demands regarding NATO's expansion towards its borders. The stark exchange came as Russian troops continued to arrive at what the U.S. argues are invasion staging grounds to Ukraine's north, south, and east. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Canadian police moved onto the Ambassador Bridge this morning to remove anti-vaccine mandate protesters, blocking the key crossing between Detroit and Windsor, Canada. The protests have inspired others across the globe, including in France, where police today intercepted hundreds of vehicles seeking to enter the capital. The BBC's Hugh Schofield has more from Paris. Since early this morning, hundreds of vehicles have been moving in convoys from the outskirts towards the city centre, with the aim, it seems, of blocking the Champs-Élysées. However, police are out in force and stopping any car that looks like it might be occupied by protesters. By mid-morning, police said they'd issued more than 200 fines. That's the BBC's Hugh Schofield reporting from Paris. A new bill in the Utah legislature is sparking fears of voter suppression. From member station KUER in Salt Lake City, Sonia Hudson reports it bans voting by mail as well as voter registration drives. Vote by mail has been around since 2016 in Utah, and top state officials generally like it including Republican Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson, who oversees elections. She says the bill would disadvantage low-income and rural Utahns. Government should not be arbitrarily, by arbitrarily I mean without good cause, um, putting restrictions into place to make this fundamental constitutional right more difficult for people. 
The bill's sponsor, Republican Representative Phil Lyman, did not respond to multiple requests for comment. For NPR News, I'm Sonia Hudson in Salt Lake City. It's NPR News. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wallenpapik, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Dana shares her insight on what bees do in winter on her podcast episode of The Accidental Farm. Stephanie Phillips visits Koshekton, New York, and speaks with Lori Raskin about forest management. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. For Farm and Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. This morning, Venus and Mars paired up and were at conjunction. If you were up and looking low on the southeastern horizon beginning about one hour before sunrise, you saw the two planets near each other in the sky. This was not a close conjunction of Venus and Mars. The two were separated by a little more than six degrees. Venus and Mars were in conjunction because they had the same right ascension. Right ascension is the celestial sphere equivalent of longitude on Earth. On Earth, the lines of longitude converge at the North Pole. On the celestial sphere, the lines of right ascension converge at the North Celestial Pole, which is very close to the star Polaris. Unlike lines of longitude on Earth, lines of right ascension are not perpendicular to the horizon. Since Polaris is not directly overhead, but is about 40 degrees above the horizon at our location, lines of right ascension intersect the horizon at that same angle, 40 degrees. As a result of this, planets can appear to be close to each other without being at conjunction. In fact, in mid-March, Venus and Mars will be separated by less than 4 degrees. All this week, the duo will be low in the southeastern sky before sunrise. Venus will be more than 200 times brighter than Mars, so use it as your beacon. Once you locate Venus, look below and to the right of it to find Mars. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Here is farm girl Dana to share with us another Accidental Farm podcast episode. What do the bees do in the winter? I get this question a lot, all the time actually, and I usually answer like this, their best. They just do their best, and sometimes that means they make it, and sometimes it means they don't. Welcome to the Accidental Farm. Here, the bees and all of the other animals are invited to live their best lives, and they do. But that doesn't mean there's not hardship, 
There is. It's just like my life and yours. We do our best to be set up for success, but road bumps come out of nowhere. You just have to keep pivoting and adjusting. You just have to do your best, like the bees. I read a fictionalized account of life within a beehive. It's called The Bees, a novel by Laleen Paul. I recommend it. Of course, it personifies the bees within the hive and has a storyline that's engaging, but it also gives you a good look into their jobs. They do have specified jobs and their complicated hierarchies, as well as how they bond together during the winter. In late summer and into early fall, the bees staff down all the non-essential drones, the males, and other non-essential workers are forced from the hive and the bees forage like mad to fill every last cell in the hive with food for the winter. I usually supplement the bees' food in the winter by adding sugar patties to the top of the hive. Sometimes they die surrounded by food, so that's not always the issue. They get cold, too. Even in the coldest temperatures, the bees vibrate to keep their hives warm. They might have mites, even though we treat for those. They might get a mouse intruder or some other blight. Too much moisture might seep into the hives as well. In addition to food, I add absorbent moisture boards to wick the moisture away from the bees. I have even covered the hives in different ways. I have a beehive cozy that I use. It's kind of like a beer cozy, but it's black heavy-duty plastic around some insulating batting. It's not perfect, but it works okay, and it's definitely not pretty. This year, a tool company, Porter Cable, sent me a new skill saw when they heard I was thinking about designing my own hive cover. I have always borrowed my tools from Carl, and he's taught me much of what I know about how to hit a nail, build a simple structure, and how to use various tools like a saw. I am usually a little bit wary until I get started, and then it's easier. Does that happen to you? So, I built one. One cover for two hives together. It's wooden and insulated on four sides and has a see-through corrugated cover on the top that's on a hinge that I can lift it to tend them when necessary. I only had time to build one. It took me a while to sort out all of the measuring and the building part, so it will be a test for this year. It works better than other covers. I will build more next year, I hope. So here's hoping that the bees survive the winter. It's a crapshoot, to be honest. Last year, I lost all of the hives. I'm hoping to maintain at least half this year. Some hives are stronger than others going into each winter, and that can determine which ones make it. So can luck. Every year I try to make some improvements in how I care for the bees, and there are other factors that contribute as well. Weather, human error. For example, this year the lids blew off in a big storm and the bees got more than they bargained for for about 12 hours. I'm hoping they can tough it out. Beekeeping on the accidental farm is full of happy and not-so-happy accidents. I try to minimize the unhappy ones where possible. I do my best and hope we come out okay. That's what I am doing as we head into the harder part of the winter. Keep your fingers crossed for the bees, and I will keep my fingers crossed for you too. XO. 
scroll down the Radio Catskill webpage, wjffradio.org slash podcast, to find a growing list of podcast productions. Good morning. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I've come out to Kachekton this morning to speak with Lori Raskin about forest management. Lori's company, DHW Forest Consulting, helps property owners get the most out of their wooded areas, both sustainably and financially. Lori, what did you study to get a degree in forest management? I can imagine you might need to know surveying, engineering, ecology, in addition to botany, all kinds of things. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I was in the biology club at SUNY Orange where I got my associate's degree. And so I was really hot on biology and genetics and cellular research. And I ended up in forestry of all things. But anyway, prior to focusing on forestry, my focus was in biology with genetics and cellular research. So I had a lot of prerequisite courses such as Bio 1, Bio 2, all the English classes and things like that. I had to take forest resource management. I had to take a forest measurements course. I had the option to take a geology course. I also had a GIS course, which is Geospatial Information Systems, so that would be applicable to map making. Dendrology, of course, we had to take that. What's dendrology? Dendrology is the study of trees. Oh, okay. Where did you work before you went out on your own as a consultant? Prior to starting DHW Forest Consulting, I did work for the Wagner Companies, which is now uh, owned by Bailey. They're like an umbrella company to the Wagner Companies, to the Bailey Companies, very large competing sawmills in the northeast of the United States. And when I was in my last semester at college, I was hired with Gutchess Lumber Company as an internship, and I worked with them for a little while, too. Is forest management just concerned with trees, or do you consider the other elements in an ecosystem? Other elements in the ecosystem are absolutely a key and major role in managing forests. Lori, who comes to you for advice? Are they mostly organizations and companies, or do individuals come to ask about managing their own property? Individuals do come to me to manage their private properties, but I've also have had the opportunity to work with municipalities. I am the forester for the town of Blooming Grove, New York. I've also represented the town of Woodstock, New York on site projects, but also larger companies in Westchester, New York have come to me to learn and understand about forestry and what they could do with the acres that they own. So are more of your clients interested in conservation of habitats on their property, or do most of them have a commercial interest in their trees? I'd have to say about 50% of my clients or people who contact me are curious to understand the ecology of their forest and want to understand how to preserve the resource or conserve a particular resource. And there are many other people that are interested in the revenue that could be generated from their property, but just it allows me an opportunity to discuss 
with people how we can improve the forest to get to a point in which it could generate revenue sustainably through time. Oh, it's quite a change from the old days when people just went racing through the forest chopping down trees. Oh, absolutely it is. There is a, a lot of education and science that we can use to justify what we do. And when I say we, it's not just private forest consultants, it's procurement foresters. And it's also loggers as well. And their municipalities also have their antenna up to protect the landscape and the area that they live. So many municipalities now require that you have a timber harvesting permit that requires permissions from other agencies in order to legally harvest timber off of your property. So I guess you have to tell people about that. Oh, yeah. Lori, we still have plenty of undeveloped land around here. How old are most of our woodlands, and what's the history of our local forests? Well, Stephanie, that's an excellent question. To answer that, it would be from perhaps a 30,000-foot perspective, because each woodlot that's owned by a private landowner has its own history unto itself, whether someone owns five acres or 150 acres or thousands of acres. So I want to say in Sullivan County and the surrounding areas, during the Civil War, when leather goods were required to help in battle, whether it be with handles for leather for rifles or for dressing or whatever the case may be, our hemlock trees, a lot of them were harvested or most of them because it was used for tannins. So in Livingston Manor and other surrounding areas, even in Coshocton, for example, there were tanneries where the tannins from hemlock trees, which comes from the bark, were used in the production of leather goods. So Sullivan County and actually the Hudson Valley area in itself was a very large and major player in the production of leather for the war times. Well, now we have plenty of hemlock, but they're they're subjected to the woolly adelgids, so we're still losing hemlocks. Oh, you've got that right. Yeah, it's incredible how pests and pathogens can decimate populations of our forest or even particular species. And biodiversity is so important for us to maintain so that we don't have just one monoculture of trees. Genetic diversity in any system is incredibly important. So there are biological agents that are being used right now in experimentation to see if it would either remediate or ward off the insect, the hemlock woolly adelgid, but that's not open to the public yet. Until then, right now we have basil spray or basil being spraying the, the, the trunk of the tree, or there are tablets that you can inject into the soil that produces chemicals and or alters the chemistry of the tree so that it wards off the bug. Well, of course, if you let natural selection just take its way, then we'll get something else when you're getting more oaks and so forth because one tree dies and another kind takes over. That's natural selection. Sure, I agree with you. And that, Stephanie, sounds lovely. And I wish that were the case all the time. But unfortunately, our forests are facing many problems. Because if we were to manage for the overstory, but not consider the understory, then 
once the overstory is removed or dies through time, reaches senescence or some type of maturity, right now we have a lot of issues in New York State and other surrounding states with desirable regeneration because the deer keep eating up the seedlings and saplings. And I've noticed. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So what's coming back? A lot of invasive species are coming back. Well, where do the invasive species come from? Well, we've noticed, we being uh, the forest products industry, we've noticed that a lot of the sightings or onsets or the, the point source of a lot of the pests and pathogens that we see being introduced into New York come from the seaports. And it's from import and export. For example, Japanese stiltgrass, that's an invasive species. It will completely take over the understory of a forest if you allow it, especially if you let sun get to the forest floor. It'll just take off like wildfire. And the only way to really get rid of it is through chemical means. And then we have to consider when and how we do that. And we don't want to kill off other vegetation that we do want or that is native around it by using chemicals to kill an invasive. And then, so what do we do? I was kind of hoping that it would be blueberries that would take over one of the trees. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> well, that does happen in lots of areas. Like the Wurtsboro Corridor, for example, there's a lot of natural blueberries that come up and instead of the oak and red maple. But nonetheless, the blueberries support our wildlife. You've kind of hinted at this, but I'm guessing that most woodlands around here are not managed. So what would we have naturally if we just left our woods alone? Wow. So that goes back to another question you had about the history. I don't know when the last time our soil has really been untouched. Because in addition to the Hudson Valley being a large leather producer or part of the leather production process and forest being used for that, our land was used for farming. For dairy production, that was a, a major player. So... If we actually could find an old growth forest, which they don't really exist today, especially in the Northeast, I think that it would look like there would be big trees and small trees and and there would be areas of the, perhaps areas of the forest that are really stocked heavily with trees, perhaps even to the point where you might want to call it a black forest because there's no sunlight getting in. It all depends on the species. If we had a hemlock forest or a, a white pine forest, that's what that might look like. Or if you had a hardwood forest that was dominant to a, part, a, a different kind of species, like oak, for example, it may not be as heavily stocked as one that's just um, a hemlock. But if you have a, a, a mixed landscape of, of different trees, then you would think and hope through time that, like you said, Stephanie, natural selection would just end up taking over and what that would look like. Maybe it would look like a garden, you know, with <laughs> seeds coming up that eventually need to get weeded out. And nature does that and things keep popping up. And we don't know if we're going to get the initial seeds we planted because something else may be wind decimated and blow in and start there, too. We recently interviewed Dr. Charles Maynard, who's deeply involved in restoring the American chestnut by creating blight-resistant trees. Can you imagine a comeback of chestnut trees in our area? I would love to see that. I mean, once long ago, chestnut trees just lined our streets along with the American elm. That would be wonderful. They're, 
Yeah, Charles Maynard, fantastic scientist. I had the privilege to be taught by him at SUNY ESF in several courses. And I have also had the privilege of seeing American chestnuts naturally in forests. However, because of the disease, they don't get very big. They remain an understory dwelling species and their lifespan isn't too long. But that would certainly be wonderful. Lori, why would homeowners want to seek your advice on managing the woods on their properties? I think it's incredibly important for homeowners or or private landowners to seek out advice or assistance and get information from not just consulting foresters such as myself, but also from the DEC or the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, or there are other organizations like the Catskill Forest Owners Association. And perhaps there may be local loggers or sawmills that a private landowner might want to speak with as well. And anything you do, whether it's forestry or or work or a project that you have, it's important to do your research and use all of your resources to find out what it is that your forest can actually offer you. But in that, you know, you also have to understand, learn, and know your audience. If you're going to talk to a logger about forest management and you want a forest management plan written for you and a schedule of activities, then a logger is someone who typically cuts the woods. They don't write forest management plans. Some of them do, but everyone has their own little niche. So I think it would be important to talk to a professional about managing your forest because because there are a lot of legal ramifications on a local and state level that if you do not comply with laws, rules, and regulations, you can get into a lot of trouble, and you don't want that to happen to you. So now you know, thanks to Lori Raskin, how forest management benefits our environment. Lori is owner of DHW Forest Consulting in Kachetan, and this is Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Thank you to Dana for sharing with our audience her Accidental Farm podcast episode that features bees in winter. Special thanks goes to our guest, consultant Lori Raskin, from her company DHW, speaking on the subject of forest management. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill.
Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org on the next Folk Plus, in 1649, I'll be airing Songs with Dates. I will take you with Karen Casey from 1649 and the Diggers, Reclaiming Land for Common Gardening, to Mary Chapin Carpenter. In June 19, 